Bibles tonight to 1 Thessalonians chapter 5. Lord willing, tonight we will finish 1 Thessalonians and then next week we will get into 2 Thessalonians. We'll be picking up right around verse 12. Every one of us that is a parent desires, hopes to have the perfect family setting. We want peaceful, serene. We want oneness and agreement amongst the members of our family. We want there to be the feeling of a team spirit, that everybody's on the same page, looking out for the well-being of everyone else, a tight-knit togetherness. That there's an atmosphere of others-centeredness and that there's just a grace in our homes that our families function in the perfect way. Now, each of us that are parents that would desire such a thing, we could also produce a, a list of standards and guidelines that would help lend itself to creating such an environment. You know, things like, put others first, or share your belongings, or, you know, a, a whole host of, of other things that would help to encourage that process to produce the ideals that we seek to, in, you know, enforce in seeing our families do well, to see, you know, a peacefulness in our homes. Now, even though we could paint a perfect picture of what a functional family looks like, our ability as parents to enforce the ideal or implement the process is a completely different story. It doesn't always work out that way because we're dealing with people. Now, even perfect parents cannot produce perfect families. And the case in point is this, that the father of the largest family in the world is Almighty God himself. And... The Bible teaches that when a man or a woman puts their faith in Christ and gives their life to him, that they are adopted by the blood bond of the Son of God himself and brought into this family under the fatherhood of God and that we are now related to one another. We are brethren. We are sistren in the gospel, in the Son of God. And God is the father of this family. And as the father of this large family, he also desires that there be a serene setting amongst his kids. He wants there to be a oneness in the attitude of a team spirit amongst those that are in his household. He desires that there's a consistent lifestyle of laughter and love and an atmosphere of other-centeredness. That's what God desires for his family. That's what he wants us as his kids to enjoy. And thus, he provides for us a list of ingredients that if practiced and employed, can help to, serve to, bring forth that family setting, that peacefulness that God so desires his kids to enjoy as part of his family. Now, in closing 1 Thessalonians, these last verses here at the end of chapter 5, our older brother, Pastor Paul, the Apostle Paul, by the Spirit of God, gives to us 
a practical list of things that will help serve to keep us as a church, as a functioning family, a healthy functioning family. The church is a family. The church in Thessalonica was a family. Paul was one of the brothers, the one who had gotten that family together, and now he's seeking to see them do well. And so by the Spirit of God, he gives to them this list of things that both reveal the heart of the Father towards his family and also reveal the desire of the Father for his family. It's a generic list of things that Paul gives to keep the family functional. Now, there are 21 things in 17 verses that Paul shouts off as he signs off at the end of this letter. That means tonight you are getting a 21-point sermon. (laughs) So I hope you drank some coffee before you came. No, no, no. Let's begin. The first things that Paul talks to us about tonight, that the Spirit of God would say to us in his family, his kids, concerns our relationship with church leadership. He begins, it's 1 Thessalonians chapter 5, verse 12. He says this, he says, And we beseech you, brethren, to know them which labor among you and are over you in the Lord and admonish you, and to esteem them very highly in love for their work's sake, and be at peace amongst yourselves. He first talks to us about how we relate to those who are, in quotes here, over us in the Lord. What exactly does the Bible mean when it talks about those who are over us in the Lord? In Matthew chapter 23, it was one of the times that Jesus said things to the public audience that his disciples wish he didn't say. There was a few of those times. One of them was when Jesus said that my body is food and my blood is drink. And unless you eat my body and drink my blood, you don't have life. And you could almost see the reaction of his disciples as he said those words. Lord, that's not going to go over well with those that are listening to you. This is a Jewish audience, you know. We don't do those things. And there were a handful of times that Jesus said things that his disciples maybe wished Jesus didn't say. And one of those such times was in Matthew chapter 23. The audience was the religious establishment, the Pharisees, the Sadducees, the rulers there in the synagogue in Jerusalem. Those that made the laws and enforced them. And Jesus had some not so nice things. It was very much less than positive and encouraging as Jesus began to pronounce woe upon the scribes and the Pharisees and bring indictment after conviction upon the practices and principles that they employed in their leadership roles. And in that, he criticized them, saying that they loved greetings in the marketplace. They loved it when people came to them and said, Rabbi, Rabbi, or Teacher, Teacher, or Master, Master, or sometimes Father, Father. And Jesus' instruction concerning this when that happened in Matthew chapter 23, verse 7, it says that they loved the greetings in the markets and to be called of men, Rabbi, Rabbi. But he said, Be not ye called Rabbi, for one is your master, even Christ, and all ye are brethren. 
and call no man your father upon the earth, for one is your father which is in heaven. The word of Jesus to all of those that are human and servants of the king is that we are all brethren. The only time in the Bible that Jesus specifically said that he hates something was concerning the doctrine and the deeds of a group of people he called the Nicolaitans. And we don't exactly know from history who this group of people was, but if you take the word Nicolaitans, it's a compound of two words that means Lord, Nico is Lord, and laity is the people, and it means to lord over people. And he said the doctrine of the Nicolaitans, which is then followed, of course, by the deeds of the Nicolaitans. And it's the only thing that Jesus said that he hates. When people stand over other people and lord over them as though they are the authority in their life. And Jesus says that he hates it. Well, here Paul talks about those that are over you in the Lord. So what exactly does that mean when he says over you in the Lord? I have a 10-year-old daughter. Her name is Hosanna, and she is a sweetheart. She is just a really good kid. And I also have a 16-month-old son, Riley. He's a good boy, too. Just a ton of energy. He's absolutely fearless. He's afraid of nothing, you know, that I've seen yet. To his detriment, probably, you know. But because of the competence and the maturity of my 10-year-old daughter, she is entrusted with a whole lot of parental responsibility. We give her the responsibility of oversight concerning her 16-month-old brother. She takes care of him. She watches him. She is a diaper technician. You know, that's the professional title that we give her to make it sound better than, you know, <laughs> what, what it really is. You know? but, but she, she, and she does a host of other things. She, in many ways, is a lot like a second mom. She has parental responsibility because of her maturity and her competence. But what she does not have is parental authority. She does not have the privilege or the permission to be the one that makes decisions on behalf of Riley. She cannot say yes or no to his pleas or requests, unless, of course, it's something that is obvious. You know, he's injured himself or something like that. She has no authority to implement or impose her will upon him. That is, if she wants him to do something that he doesn't want to do, she does not have the authority to impose her will and make him do what she wants to do. She does not have the authority to discipline or reprove him if he is out of line. She has parental responsibilities. She does not have parental authority. I am the father in my household. It's a position that I much enjoy. And I covet it greatly. And I am not willing to give that position over to anybody else. I exclusively have the right to be my children's father. And though I might impart responsibility to some... I will not give them authority to be the parents of my children. Now, in much the same way, God looks across the span of his kids, countless in number. And because of the competence and the maturity, or perhaps even the gifting and calling of some of his kids, he gives them parental responsibilities. He raises up pastors and leaders, people he puts in various places, for the purpose of oversight, instruction, 
admonition, which means warning. It's the word that Paul uses here in the text. And he gives those kids that responsibility because it's a service to to them and a service to the Lord. And it's a source of God raising up kids, both the older and the younger. And so God gives parental responsibility. But what God does not give a pastor, a preacher, a prophet, or anybody else is parental authority. There is no spiritual man that has the right to dictate over the decisions that are made in the lives of God's people. God himself reserves the right to make those calls for them. There is no person that has the right or the responsibility to bring a condemnation or a reproof of chastisement upon someone. That is something that is reserved for the father alone to do upon his children. Paul wrote to Timothy and he said that there is one mediator between God and men that is the man, Christ Jesus. And Jesus said, call no man on earth your father or rabbi or master because one is your master and you, he said, are all brethren. And that is true all the way through, you know, the whole thing, uh, you know, this whole idea here with this. Now, What does Paul say in light of these things? In light of the fact that there are those that are over you in the Lord. He says, first of all, he says, know them. In light of the fact that we're to esteem those that are over us in the Lord, those that have responsibility, what are we to do? First of all, he says, to know them. What does this mean? Oftentimes, people make the mistake of expecting more from pastors or spiritual leaders than what is fitting. They often forget that they're human. And sometimes the, the expectations are borderline ridiculous. Now, what if Riley, my 16-month-old son, had it in his mind that my daughter, Hosanna, the 10-year-old who often takes care of him, had the same competence and ability as Georgia, my wife? What if that was the expectation that he placed upon Hosanna? He would probably leave the family at some point. He would realize that he's been disillusioned, that he had it in his mind that this overseer was perfect in some way. But when he found out that she still has struggles of her own, difficulties, things that she's working through. See, it's true. Hosanna's no longer in diapers. She doesn't have to worry about that. She's got victory. She's through that area of her life but she still struggles with long division. She doesn't quite get that yet. And what if Riley expected her to have that level of competence? Well, eventually he would be disillusioned. He would, be, he would feel violated. It's scandalous, you know. She claims to be. She puts forth this picture as though she is, but in reality, she's just like me. Yeah, she's just like you. We're just like you. Pastors, leaders, people, we're people. We struggle. Maybe God's given us certain gifts or a certain calling to fulfill a certain role that serves him and maybe serves you. Maybe. But in reality, we're just people, just like you. And so Paul says, know them. Understand that they're just human. They're just a part of this race like the rest of us. Second of all, he says to esteem them. Now, the reason for the esteem is not necessarily their person or their position or their personality. Those aren't necessarily the reasons. The reason he gives is for their work's sake. 
because of what they're doing and who they're doing it for. Therefore, it isn't about them, but for the Lord. For the Lord's sake and the work that they're doing in his name, esteem them. It's true that not all pastors are good. It's true that some of them are just outright bad. But amongst those that are good, it is true that there are many, and I'm not speaking of myself, but just in general throughout the the ages of God's kingdom, church history, there are many good pastors that could be doing a whole lot better for themselves and for their families if they were doing something out there in the world. But they've responded to the call of God. They've given their lives to his service. And there's a cost to that. It isn't just once or twice a week getting up in front of people and pontificating and giving instruction and teaching the Bible. There's a difficulty about it. There's a challenge to it. You're dealing with people. That's hard. (laughs) Because people expect more of you than what you expect of yourself. And so Paul is saying, for the Lord's sake and for the sake of the work, esteem them highly. Hold them in high esteem in your mind. Because of what they're doing and who they're doing it for, understand that. And then finally, he says, be at peace amongst yourselves. Probably the number one most dangerous thing to churches, and probably the number one thing that grieves the heart of God above anything else, is when there's conflict, dissension, schism, and division amongst his people. There's nothing more grieving to the heart of God nor damaging to the family of God as when that happens in a church. A couple of months ago or sometime in the recent past, it came to the attention of my wife who brought it then to my attention that one of my kids was saying things that were subtly condescending about one of my other kids when they were in the presence of common friends. And my wife brought this to my attention, and when I heard it, I immediately called one of those kids, you know, time to sit down, you know. And we all sat down in a circle on the ground together, and and we began to share. And I began to tell them a story that I remember from the past, you know. And it was a true story about these four brothers. And the four brothers were out there in the neighborhood as they often were after school, playing sports and doing the things that boys do. And somehow in all of the activity, a fight broke out. And one of those four boys, the four Arnold boys, got into a fight with one of the other neighborhood kids. And everybody formed a circle around this group that, you know, as as the scuffle, you know, developed and and, and grew. And as it was happening, a car approached and drove by, and it was recognized to be the father of the four Arnold boys driving by, coming home from work, you know. And, And he didn't stop. He didn't screech on the brakes. He just slowly passed by and proceeded to his house, and then he pulled into his driveway. Well, the fight soon broke up, and the four Arnold boys knew that they were most likely in a whole heap of trouble, and so they tucked their tails and gathered their stuff, and they started to walk home. And as they approached and they walked up the driveway, they're standing in the opening of the garage door, gaping in the shadows, was their father looking down on them. And as they approached, they began quickly, you know, talking and trying to defend, and the father just sat and listened, and once everything was still and quiet, the father looked at his four boys and he said, Boys, I saw something today that I never want to see again. And they said, yeah, Dad, we know. We're so sorry. We'll never do it. And he said, no, listen, you didn't listen. I drove by and I saw one Arnold boy in a fight 
I never want to see that again. Oh, yeah, Dad, we know. No, 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 no. If I drive by, I want to see four Arnold boys in a fight. Because one of you was fighting, and that means that the other three were watching. I never want to see that again. And the boys were like, whoa, let's go back and get them. You know, we'll kill them, you know, whatever, you know. But I shared that story with my kids, and I began to say to them and say, listen, your friends, your acquaintances, the people that you know, they're going to come and go in your life. And 30 years from now, you'll barely even remember their names, much less who they were or how important they were to you. But what you will still have is one another. You're still going to have each other. And the most treasured relationship that you'll ever have is the relationship that you have with the people that you're looking at right now. And I said, understand this and don't be deceived. Is that if one of you does well, all of you do well. It never pays to cut one of the other ones down for the sake of trying to elevate or puff yourself up. If she does well, you do well. If he does well, you two do well. Because you're one, you're a unit, you're each other. So never do that. Don't ever cut each other down. The same thing applies for the church. Listen, look around you. Those people that you see across the room, across the aisles, those are the people that you're going to spend eternity with. Great, right? You're like, oh dear. (laughs) That means 10,000 years from now, the people that you're sitting in this room with are going to be the people that are closest to you even 10,000 years from now. The relationships that you have with one another in here are the most treasured and prized of any that you can have outside of perhaps your family, you know, that's going to heaven, your, you know, blood family, which will also be your eternal family. And the truth of the matter is that if one of us does well, all of us do well. And so it never pays to have division, to have schism, to talk down on someone, to cut someone down, or to backbite or gossip about them, or to prayerfully bring up the issues that you heard about what they're going through in their home or in their private life. Paul says, be at peace amongst yourselves for your pastor's sake. Please, understand. It's the most valuable thing that we have. And so he talks to them about their relationship with spiritual authority. Build them up. You know, it's true. The same thing is true for churches. If our church does well, the other churches around us do well. And if the other churches around us do well, we do well, right? It's too sad that often churches are in competition with each other. How many are they getting? Well, how many are we getting? Well, do we have more than them? Well, they left there and they're coming to us. Yeah, you know, and and, and there's this competition where, you know, sometimes churches, we can look down at other churches. It's not to be. In the kingdom of God, we're to be at peace amongst ourselves. That's what Paul is saying to the Thessalonians. Well, he moves on and he gives another list now of commands concerning our relationships with each other. In verse 14, he says, Now we exhort you, brethren, warn them that are unruly. Warn them that are unruly. The first command that he gives is a warning towards them that are unruly. The word unruly doesn't mean, as you might think right off the bat, someone who's rebellious or someone who kicks against the rules, so to speak. You know, the rebel, the person that that is the black sheep of the family. That's not what that word means. The definition of the word unruly is undisciplined, disorganized, and without direction or purpose. 
Now, as we read this scripture here, and then a chunk of what comes up in 2 Thessalonians chapter 3, we get the idea that there were some there in the church in Thessalonica that were just plain old lazy. They didn't want to work. They didn't want to provide for their families or the things of their own. They were just kind of living off of the system. You remember that Thessalonica was a large city and it was very affluent place. And certainly they were at that place in their development as a city where people could get by that way. Not working, just kind of, you know, taking it from the system, so to speak, and just not having any drive or any ambition. And it's to them that Paul gives this word. And when you read, I don't, we don't have time to go through the, the verses in Second Thessalonians chapter 3, but he uses this same word uh, three times in chapter 3 of Second Thessalonians in the context of those that don't work. He says that they're unruly or, uh, you know, what's the word that he uses? I'll read it to you. Um, well, no, I won't. Yeah, no, he says it's uh, um, disorderly. Yeah, same word. When you read the word disorderly there in Second Thessalonians, it's the same word in the Greek that he uses here that's, that's unruly. It's disorganized. It's disordered. It's not having any direction or any purpose in their life. And he says that they're to be warned, that we're to warn those types of people. But it's interesting to me that he doesn't tell us what the warning is that we're to give them. What is the warning that you give to someone like that? You know, the, God's going to get you. You know, I'm not sure if that's the right one. You know, what, what exactly is the warning? Well, I think very practically, it's a warning to a child of God that's living that way, that they are wasting their life. They're wasting the potential that God has put in them, the calling and the destiny that he has placed inside their heart and that he saved them for. You know, we, we live in the greatest country in the world. And that, you know, we, we have the freedom in this country, unlike most other countries in the rest of the world, we have the freedom in this country, in the very constitution and bylaws of our country, we are given the freedom to attain the maximum of the potential that God has placed in us. That that's the privilege that we have in this country. I'm not opposed to the public schooling system necessarily, you know. I went through it. I got a good education. I didn't even try that hard, and I got a decent education. It it, it wasn't bad in that context for me. But there was one thing that I never got through all of the years of being educated in the public school system of the United States of America, and that was this. I never, ever, ever once heard that I had a God-given potential. That God had placed within me the ability to do something well. And to use that talent or those gifts that he has given me to do something that is worthy in my life or for my life or for my family or for my future. I never got that. What I got rather was just that the course of life is that you go to school and then you go to college and then you get a job which hopefully turns into a career which then will provide for a family, which you will feed until you retire, and then you will die. And that, and that basically was the, the, you know, that was the map. 
that was laid out for me in the system that I was a part of. That I Now, that, that might not be true about the whole thing. That's what happened to me. And let me tell you what the result of that was in my life, is that when I graduated high school and then went to a little bit of menial college, because that's what you do after high school, I was what the Bible would call unruly. Not necessarily rebellious, not the black sheep in that context, but in the context of the word, disordered, disorganized, without purpose, without direction, without a plan, without structure within my life. Because there was no hope in that for me. Okay, so this is the purpose of life. I just go, okay, now I go get a job, I work for someone. And I do that as long as I can, and hopefully I can eke my way through to a decent retirement, and then I retire in Florida, and I die. And, and that just didn't excite me, and so, so, that, so that was my life. My life reflected the path and the plan that I was given. No hope, no, no, no nothing, so, so there's no reason to have structure. There's no reason not to go to bed at 2 o'clock in the morning and wake up at noon. There's no reason not to do nothing but just watch movies and fill myself with as much media and gossip and, you, you know, uh, pop culture as possible. There's no reason to give myself to any of that or to, to, to study or to read or to attain or to drive towards anything. There's no reason to. And I had no reason to. There was no reason to. And that makes sense if you're in the world. If you don't know the Lord and that's the system that you're brought up in, then that makes sense that someone would be that way, that they would be unruly. But there's no excuse for the child of God. Because we know the very author of life. We have God himself, whom the Bible says knit us together in our mother's womb, that he knows us through and through. We know the God who says that he has put purpose within us and destiny that he's given us gifts and a calling. And the Bible says that he gives favor and promise and privilege to his children. And so therefore, there is no excuse for the child of God to be unruly. To not have a plan, to not have a purpose, to not be going after something and doing something. Because here's the thing, you cannot fail if you're a child of God. Now listen. No good parent is going to support a lazy child. I was talking to one of the brothers here in the church who's having a particular issue with one of his kids, one of his sons. And he was saying to me, he said, he said, Nick, I would love, love it if I could bless him with, you know, he named a sports car that I could never know what that, you know, what it was. If I could just give him one of those, I want him to be driving around in one of those. And I want him to be dressed with the best clothes. And I want to give him, I just want to give to him. Everything in me wants to give to him. But I know if I do, I'll destroy him. Because he'll take what I give him and he'll throw it away. He'll waste it. Because he's, he's got no drive. He's unruly, so to speak. See, the heart of a good father is to want to give. To want to support. But you can't support a lazy child. Because a lazy child, the Bible says, is the shame of his mother. However, a good father, listen carefully, although a good father will not support a lazy child, a good father will not let a diligent child fail. And that is what God is calling his kids unto. We do not have the right as Christians, as those that have the spirit of God living inside of us, to make excuses and say that we're beaten down by the system. Or that we can't make a go of it because things are too hard or the man's hand is too, you know, strangling, the stranglehold is too short. We don't have that excuse. 
because we have Almighty God on our side. And the Bible says that he gives us favor and that he gives blessing and that he's given us gifts and a destiny and a calling. And we, above all people in the planet, should be those that reach our God-given potential. And so I firmly believe that the warning that's to be given to the unruly is be careful that you don't waste your life. Don't waste it. Get up. Put a baseball bat in your television. Get organized. Make a plan. Have some structure. And just start doing something. And see how God begins to lead and develop and work in your plans. So he says, warn them that are unruly. Then he goes on and he says, comfort the feeble-minded, support the weak, and be patient to all men. Comfort the feeble-minded, support the weak, and be, be patient to all men. Interesting. You know, we have a tendency as human beings to want to run with those that are most like us, don't we? We want to find the people that, that resonate with us. They have the same type of personality, the same type of drives, the same types of things that we like to do. And those are the people that we want to be around, the kind of people that we want to talk to. And that's easy, isn't it? It is easy, but it's not Christ-like. It's not what Jesus did. I mean, think about if Jesus was that way. If he only hung out with deities. There are none other than him. But, 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 if, but if that's how Jesus was, then he would never have come to meet us where we're at. You know, I shared with the Foundations group this past Sunday night that, you know, for God to become a man was a bigger step down than it would be for a man to become a maggot. How many of you would become a maggot to save maggots? I wouldn't, you know. <laughs> but God, because he so loved us, was willing to become one of us and walk in our steps to condescend to our estate. We are the feeble-minded. We are the weak. We are those that he needed to be patient with, and he was willing to do those things so that he could reach us and then bring us up to his level. In the days before helicopters and aviation, you know, in the military, you know, troops and weapons and battalions would be moved by ships and through oceans. And one of the strategies that an army or a country would have to employ in order to successfully operate in an, you know, uh, an ocean setting is that they had to use convoy travel. And that meant that all the ships had to travel within close vicinity of themselves. And that had a very distinct advantage in that it provided a security blanket for all of the ships, but especially the weaker ones. There was a great advantage in that, but there was also a great disadvantage, and that was this. Is that it forced the more advanced ships, those that had the greatest capabilities, of not employing those capabilities and those capacities for the sake of supporting and being a covering for those that weren't as advanced as the others. And it's the same idea that Paul is saying, hey, listen, you're in the family of God, and perhaps you've been saved for 20 years, maybe 30 years. Maybe you know the Bible, you teach the Bible. You're well established in the things of the faith. Well, listen, slow down a little bit and condescend to those that maybe aren't quite so far along as you are. Perhaps those that are weaker in the faith or newer in the faith or more needy in the faith. That's like one of those words that we hate, right? Needy. Needy people, you know? And, and, and yet, that's what God is calling us to do. When I can squeeze it in as often as I can, I like to take my kids running. 
It's, it's just such a great thing that we do. We'll go to the rail trail, and they all do it, except for Riley, of course, because he you know, doesn't do that yet. But, but all, all three of the older kids and myself, we'll, we'll get our running shoes, and we'll go jogging. Well, here, here is what happens when we run. The slowest runner gets to run with dad. Not because I'm slower than my kids. I could, man, I could teach them a thing or two about running, let me tell you. You know, well, maybe not anymore. <laughs> They're getting better. But, but I'm not so foolish of a father that I'm going to leave young Sarah, who's usually the straggler, by herself while I plow ahead and get my workout in, you know. So I will always hang back with the slowest runner. Now, the other two, they're running ahead going, look how great we are. Look how great. Look how fast. Look at us compete with one another. But they don't get the fellowship with dad. Sarah and I, we get to talk. We get to, you know, when we do, we talk about all kinds of things while we're running. You know, she'll ask questions about why it burns when, you know, when you're running. You know, we'll talk about food and we'll talk. You know, we just talk. You know, she's a little girl and we just talk we have a great time the other two they're competing they're striving listen let me tell you a secret in the christian faith dad hangs with the weakest with the slowest with the feeble-minded with those that are in need of comfort that's where father god hangs out and if you want to be closer if you want to be in the presence of the father listen to pastor paul our older brother he's saying comfort the feeble-minded support the weak and be patient to all men because there's a distinct blessing in it. You get to experience the fellowship of the Father in it. And so he's given us that exhortation. The Lord is there. The third group of instructions that he gives concern our relationship to this life and the circumstances, or I'm sorry, or rather our relationship to the circumstances of this life. Uh, actually, I skipped one. I skipped verse 15. He says, See that none render evil for evil unto any man, but ever follow that which is good, both among yourselves and to all men. Concerning our, our relationship to other people, he says, See that none render evil for evil. That's in our nature, isn't it? You know, I noticed something. I don't, I don't know if you notice things like this or if I'm just weird, you know. But... I've noticed that in the past probably year or two years, I have heard more messages that are geared towards, not just here in the church, but on the radio, on things that I've listened to from other places. I mean, just message after message on the subject of bitterness and unforgiveness. Has anybody else noticed that? I mean, I've been saved for 13 years, and I've heard thousands of, of teachings, literally thousands of teachings. And never have I heard so many teachings on the subject of bitterness and unforgiveness as I have in the last couple of years. And I think it's a real problem, not just in the church, but just in the world in general, is this, this attitude of, I have been offended. I have been violated. I, my rights have been stomped upon, and I will not have it. And, and there's something in us that when somebody does us wrong, our reaction is that we want to stomp back. In some way, we want to retaliate and get it. And here, what Paul is saying is, listen, don't render evil for evil. That's not what to do. But ever follow that which is good, both among yourselves and to all men. There's a great promise in the 15th Psalm. In Psalm chapter 15, David writes, and he's talking about the people that experience God's presence. 
That's the subject of the psalm. And he says, these are very simply the characteristics of the people that experience the presence of God in their life. And he goes on and he gives a list. But what strikes me is the last or second to the last thing that he says uh, there at the second half of verse 4. It says, he that sweareth to his own hurt and changeth not. One of the chief principles or characteristics of those that experience the presence of God in their lives are those that make a covenant with themselves that I am going to endure it if somebody hurts me. That if I am the injured party in a dispute or in a conflict or in the way things fall out or the way the cards are dealt or in whatever situation it is, if somebody says something that's purposely aimed at me to wound me or if somebody just outright steamrolls me, I am making a covenant. I'm going to swear to my own hurt. That I'm just going to be the offended party and I'm going to endure it willingly and I'm not going to change my mind. And David says that that's the quality of someone who's abiding in the presence of God. There's a blessing in it. And that's what Paul is more or less exhorting here in this verse. He's saying, let no man render evil for evil, but ever follow that which is good. Just be the offended party Say, for the sake of the family, for the sake of experiencing God's grace and his presence within my life, I'm just going to endure this. I'm not going to hold the grudge. I'm not going to wait for my opportunity to punch back in some way. I'm just going to endure it and take it. And there's a blessing attached to that. And so Paul says to not render evil for evil. Well, then he moves on in verse 16, and he begins talking to us concerning our relationship to the circumstances we face in this life. And he now goes on to make all of us laugh because he tells us three things that we're to do that I find or classify as being absolutely impossible. In verse 16, he says, Rejoice evermore. If you take the definition of those two words, rejoice and evermore. And you form a sentence just out of the definition of those two words. This is what that sentence says. Be cheerful and calmly happy at all times. Be cheerful and calmly happy at all times. And that, it makes me laugh, but it also gives me hope. And here's why. Because first of all, if it's in the Bible, then that must mean that it's possible. Because the Bible teaches us that God's commandments are God's enablements. He doesn't just ask us to do things that are impossible, but rather he provides us with the strength and the ability, the grace and the power of his spirit to do the things that he's asking us to do. And so it is possible. And it also gives me hope because if Paul, the Apostle Paul, our older brother, from the place of maturity, the place of oversight that he was given, if he is looking to us and he's saying that this is a real key to living a successful life, if it stands out in his mind as a counsel that he would give to us, then that must mean that it works, that it's tried and true, that not only is it possible, but that there is, there, there's something in it, you know. I was having a conversation with um, Bill. You guys all know Bill O'Neill. He's not here tonight, so I can talk about him. And and I'll find out if he is listening to the tape, because he'll bring it up later. But anyway, you know, he 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 has an immense amount of responsibility 
and what he does. I mean, he and Mark Molinero, they run the county, basically. And I was in his office where he works at the county building uh, about a month ago, and I was looking around at the piles of papers and the binders and the folders, and I was curious, so I started asking questions. Well, how does this work, Bill? And what do you do when this problem arises? And how, you know, and I, and I was just trying to learn something because I was just so overwhelmed by what was going on in that place. And then finally I just said, Bill, don't you get stressed out? I mean, how do you handle all this? You know, all these budgets and problems and circumstances and unions and prices. And how do you do this? And I said, don't you get stressed out? And he goes, and he wasn't being pious. He just goes, no, not anymore. I go, really? Why? What happened? He goes, I got Jesus. And that was his answer. I'm not trying to take his reward, but he, he was just being as candid as possible, not rehearsed or prepared. He just said, you know what? Ever since I got saved, he said, I don't get stressed out anymore. If it gets done... It gets done. If it doesn't, it doesn't. What are they going to do? Fire me? And then what? Oh, well. You know, and I was like, wow, you know, that's just, you're right. You're absolutely right. That's it. You know, we have the promises of God in our life. You know, why do we need to be all, you know, concerned about everything that's happening to us in that way? We don't have to be. That's the whole point. Well, you say, well, how do we get that way? Paul's next word. Look at verse 17. He says, pray without ceasing now i've tried this (laughs) i believe with all my heart that if you're a woman you can do this (laughs) because women can do an immense amount of things at the same time i'm amazed at the amount of things my wife can juggle all at once cooking dinner taking care of the baby cleaning now i mean just it's immeasurable me one thing that's it one thing i cannot do two things at once and so if i set forth to pray i am praying if i then turn my attention and i'm working i am working i cannot do two things at once it is absolutely impossible for me to do what does this mean when it says pray without ceasing here's what it means it doesn't necessarily mean that 24 hours a day you are in open audible dialogue with god but here's what it does mean don't ever let the conversation end. See, I'll drive a long distance in the car with my family, and I'll be sitting with my wife. And we will have a dialogue that lasts the duration of the four or five hours that we're in the car, but maybe only 20 minutes of it is talk. We'll say a few words, and then we'll travel for a little while. We haven't left each other's presence. We haven't stopped communing with one another. We're just not necessarily speaking to each other at that moment. But the fellowship is still happening. The memories are still being made. The relationship is still growing stronger. And that's the idea behind this, I, this concept of praying without ceasing, is that there should never be a moment, a single moment in your life, when you're separated from the presence of God. The prayer is not 15 minutes in the morning and 15 minutes in the evening when you wake up and when you go to bed. Or at a moment during the day when you pause to throw up a prayer or something. You know. The prayer is a lifestyle. It's something that is constant. It's, Paul wrote to the Romans, Romans chapter 12, verse 12, and he said, continue instant in prayer. And the idea is that we live in fellowship with our God. There's never a moment that he wants to be separated from us. And I experience the presence of God in my life at the most unexpected times. When my mind is a million miles away from being on my knees and interceding for something specific. And that's just the the way God wants it to be with us. Is that there's never really an amen. There's an amen, so be it. But there's never an amen where we say, okay God, I'll see you later. 
It's a constant dialogue. There's a constant fellowship, constant communion. That's what there is to be. And you see, when you have that, then you begin to realize, wow, he's with me. He's for me. He loves me. The Bible is true when it says that he keeps me as the apple of his eye. The Bible is true when it says that no evil can befall me, that nothing evil can can happen because it's overruled for good. When it says that all things work together for good to those that love God and are called according to his purpose, I realize that that's true. I realize that that, that he who began a good work in me, that he is going to be faithful to complete it and finish what he started. I believe that nothing will separate me from the love of God, which in Christ Jesus, neither height nor depth, nor principality nor power, nor things present, nor things to come, nor height nor depth, or any other thing can separate me from the love of God. And you know what happens once that realization begins to grip my soul because I'm in fellowship with my Father? Is that I can rejoice even when I'm in adverse circumstances. And I find the ability, because I trust Him, to do what Paul tells us to do next in verse 18. He says, In everything, give thanks. For this is the will of God in Christ Jesus concerning you. Now, he does not say, thankfully, for everything, give thanks. Because that would be impossible. I was just talking to the kids last night, and I was ta- we were talking about 9-11. And we were talking about this verse. And I said, now we don't give thanks to God for the fact that airplanes flew into buildings, right? We don't say, thank you, God, that airplanes hit buildings. Well, your word says, for everything, give thanks. Thank you, God, that thousands of people die. No, 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 we don't do that. That's absurd. That's sacrilegious. But it is possible for the child of God to give thanks in everything. Regardless of what the circumstance is or how dark it seems or, you know, what other... Things might be surrounding it. In everything, we can give thanks. Why? Because we realize that everything that happens to us in our life is Father-filtered and it is working together for good and will ultimately be overruled for good. And thus we can give thanks. Thank you, Lord, that this is happening in my life. Thank you that I'm going through this season of humbling right now because maybe I can't see what you're doing or why it's necessary, but you do. And I know you're committed to me. I know you're going to finish the work. I know this is going to turn around. And so I give thanks in it. I've shared this with you before. I don't mean to make light of your circumstances. I know that there are people in this church right now that are going through things that are so heavy. I wouldn't trade places with you for anything. And I'm not trying to make light and just say, oh, yeah, well, just give thanks, you know. But I will tell you this, and I've learned this from my own experience is that for some reason in this thing called the kingdom of God, and it's a mystery beyond anything I can explain or understand, is that the way out of a circumstance is to begin to embrace willingly the thing that you're trying to get away from. No, no, Lord, I don't want this in my life. I'm not going to give thanks for it. I'm not going to accept it. I'm, I'm rebuking this trial. I'm rebuking this. No, 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 that's not the way out. It never works that way. The further you try to run from it, the tighter it grabs you. But when you turn towards it and you say, you know what, this is from the Lord and I'm going to take it no matter what it is, no matter how much it looks like the devil or anything else that is, I'm going to take it. I'm going to embrace this circumstance that, that God has allowed to come into my life. And then you begin to give thanks. And do you know what happens once you do that? 
you become like Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego that were thrown into a burning, fiery furnace. What does it say? It says that there was a fourth one in the furnace with them and that he looked like the Son of Man. And you begin to experience the presence of the Lord in that thing, the very thing that you were trying to get away from, and you find that that is where the freedom is. The most amazing thing about Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego is that they did not want to come out of the fire when they were called. They didn't want to go in it before it happened. But once they embraced, for the Lord's sake, the thing that God had ordained for them, they found his grace to be sufficient, and they did not want to be out of the fire that they had so desperately wanted to avoid previous. Same thing is true in every one of our lives, in any circumstance that can come across our path. Give thanks. Rejoice in the Lord. He is a faithful Father, and He knows what we need, and He does what is absolutely right. The final set of these instructions concerns our relationship to this life. In verse 19, He says, Quench not the Spirit. The most precious thing that you and I have as children of the Almighty is that he has given to us his Holy Spirit. The third divine person of the Holy Trinity lives inside of our hearts. Jesus said, is it expedient that I go away? Because if I don't go away, the Comforter will not come. But if I go away, I will send the Comforter and he will abide with you even forever. And the most precious thing that you and I have is the guidance, the fellowship, the comfort, the direction, the inspiration that comes from having the Spirit of God at rest and at home within our hearts and moving within our life. But the Bible teaches that it's possible to quench the flow of the Holy Spirit. Jesus described it as a well that would spring up from within us. And it's possible that there's a kink or a clog somewhere in that well and that the flow of God's Spirit in our life has been quenched by something. You know, I left my trampoline out over the winter. Don't tell my insurance company that I have a trampoline, you know. But, but it, you know, I tried to cover it with a tarp, and I learned that you don't do that. Don't put a tarp. If you leave the tarp off, the water goes through. If you leave the tarp on, you have 14 tons of water and ice and a big herniated trampoline in the spring, you know. So, so all of this ice melts, and I've got this big pool. And so I get a, a, a garden hose, and I, you know, unwind it, and I roll it down the hill, and I start doing the siphon thing. You know, I'm going to siphon, and it's just not coming. And so I'm going, I'm going, what is wrong with you? And, and, and finally, finally, the quenching was removed. You know what it was? It was a school of stink bugs that had holed up in my hose for the winter. <laughs> It wasn't the first time I'd eaten those. (laughs) Another story for another time. But see, once that which was quenching was removed, then I got, you know, drenched with water, of course, you know, because you've now released and allowed that well to flow again. And I wonder what stink bugs we have in our lives right now. What things we've allowed to clutter up our mind and our heart and has quenched the work of God's spirit. Listen, the most precious thing that we have is the leading, the anointing, the power, the direction, the guidance, the fellowship of God's Holy Spirit within our life. Don't quench that work. He says, despise not prophesying is in verse 21. That is, be on the lookout for the leading of the Lord within your life. 
Pay attention when you're having conversation with your brothers and your sisters. Look for the guidance and direction of the Lord in it. Be aware of what God might be saying through circumstance or through people or through a word that is shared. Be aware of God's leading in your life. Don't push him to the backside and say, well, God doesn't, you know, I have to make my own choices. No, no, no. The Lord wants to lead your path. What did he say to pray in the Lord's prayer? He said, when you pray, lead us. And then not into temptation. We say, well, lead us not in. No, no, no. First it's lead us. Lord, lead us. He wants to lead us. He wants to give us direction. So don't despise it when he might be giving it to you. Pay attention to what's going on around you, to what people are saying. Verse 21, prove all things. Hold fast that which is good. Don't just assume that something that you're doing is right or okay because everybody else is doing it. Don't just assume that the story you're hearing is true just because of the person who's telling it to you. Be diligent to prove all things, test all things, and then hold to that which is good. Agree with it, bear witness, and hold on to what is good. And then in verse 22, abstain from all appearance of evil. The point is, guard your testimony. Each one of us has a testimony. There's someone that's watching your life right now that's looking into the faith to see if the things that you believe are true. And the way that you live your life speaks to either affirm or deny the witness that you're giving with your lips or with your mouth or with your shirt, perhaps, your T-shirt, or the things you say or the fact that you're in church on a Wednesday night. But it isn't just our behavior that can damage our witness or ruin our testimony. Even the appearance of evil within our lives can have a detrimental effect upon the way people view the Christian life. And so abstain from the appearance of evil. Well, yeah, we, we live together, but we don't sleep together. Please, you know. What year was I born? You know, yeah, I'm a preacher. I'm not an idiot, you know. We're human, you know. Abstain from the appearance of evil. Not just the deeds of it, but even the very appearance of it, because it can ruin your testimony. And then he says in verse 23, and now here's Paul's prayer as he concludes. He says, and the very God of peace sanctify, that means to complete the work that he's begun, to take full control in your life, to have complete reign and rule and to fill your heart and finish his work. The very God of peace sanctify you wholly. And I pray God your whole spirit and soul and body be preserved blameless unto the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. The Bible teaches that man was made in the image of God. And that we are a trichotomy. We are a three-part being. Just as God is Father, Son, and Spirit. We were created in the image of God. And we are three-part beings. We are spirit, soul, and body. The spirit is what resonates and relates to God. The Spirit is what died when Adam partook of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, but it is also what is born again when a person comes to faith in Jesus Christ. It's the part of you that relates to God. It's your spirit. Also, there is your soul. Your soul is the seat of your emotions. It's your mind. It's your will. It's your feelings. It's, it's, it's everything that is the part of you that thinks, the intangible, invisible part that makes up who you are. That's your soul. And then finally, there's your body, which is nothing more than just a tent. It's nothing more than just a house. It is not who you are. 
It is not you, it is just what houses you. Your spirit and your soul live inside of your body. But Paul made no distinction between the three parts of man's existence and the sanctification process of God working in your life. He says, now may God preserve your whole spirit and soul and body blameless before him at his coming. And that God's desire is not just that we should be holy in spirit, but carnal in flesh. Or that we be holy in soul, but spiritually weak. But that God wants every part of our being to be completely separated unto him. Faithful is he that calleth you, who also will do it. Brethren, pray for us. Greet all the brethren with a holy kiss. I charge you by the Lord that this epistle be read unto all the holy brethren. The grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with you. Amen. The musicians can come as we conclude the text in 1 Thessalonians. We heard a lot of things tonight. And I don't know what the Holy Spirit might be speaking to your life and into your heart as we go through this text and we hear these words. Maybe for some of you, there, there's a schism. There's something in you. There's, there, you, you. there's something with another brother or another sister in the church. And tonight, maybe the Holy Spirit put his finger on that area of your life and said, that's not right. The way you think about that person or the way that you're treating that person, even quietly in your mind. Maybe for some of us, the Lord tonight spoke and he said, it's time to get organized. It's time to stop living an unruly life, living as though there's no purpose and no direction, that, you know, that there's no plan that, that, that God had. Maybe for some of us, there's a circumstance that you refuse to give thanks in, something that you refuse to embrace and take as the will of God for this season of your life in some way, and, and it's quenched your rejoicing. The rejoicing is gone. Maybe for some of you, there's something in your life that's quenched the work of the Holy Spirit within you. There's a clog. The overindulgence in worldly amusements or in carnal pleasures or maybe in a lack of fellowshipping with the Lord, but there's something and you know that you're dried up. You know that there's, there's been a quenching and that you need to be refreshed again, brought back into the presence of the Lord. Maybe there's an area where there, there's the appearance of evil, or, or maybe it is evil. There's an evil. There's a sin. There's something in your life. Well, listen, I want to give you a chance to respond to this message tonight. I know for myself, when I walk around my house or I walk around out in the yard, I see things that are wrong. And a lot of times I don't deal with it at the time because I can't. Or I, and I make a mental note. And I say, oh, you know, at some point I've got to get to that. And, and a lot of times you can hear a message. And God can put his finger on something. He can shine his light on an area of your life. And, and you can say, oh, yeah, I see. I'm going to have to deal with that. I've got to get to that. Or, well, listen, I want to give you a chance to respond. As the musicians begin to play, if the Lord spoke to you tonight and there's just an area of your life where you feel like you want God to work or move back in or get things right, I just want you to stand up right where you're seated. You're not going to come forward or anything, but just stand up while you're, where you're seated right there. And if someone around you is standing, then the, the brothers that are around the brothers, pray for the brothers that are standing. 
where there's sisters that are standing, sisters, come pray for them. You don't have to tell them what's going on or what it is, but just let it be washed. There's something that happens when we just acknowledge before the Lord. We say, yes, Lord, I see what you're saying to me tonight. I agree with what you're, what you're putting your light upon. And Lord, I want it to be right. And I pray, God, as, as you just respond, let him move in and let him do that work within your life. So we're going to sing. If the Lord spoke to you, I just ask you, just stand right where you are. Go ahead.